Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. We have hit December and the regular season is still going on. It's getting bumpy, but the finish line of this college football season is almost in sight. My guest this week to talk about this later-than-usual stretch run is Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. This is LSU Alabama week, and it's amazing what different states these two programs are in since the Tigers broke through and beat the Tide last year. We'll talk about LSU's regression and Alabama's almost boring brilliance. The most interesting part of the playoff race has become, will Ohio State play enough games? Ross and I will talk about the Big Ten's football season, which has become one long headache. Plus, who is the front runner for the Heisman Trophy? Even though the odds say one thing, I think Ross and I think another thing. And is Tom Herman's time at Texas coming to an end? And will it lead to a return to college football for Urban Meyer. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and a good rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is my friend Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. Um, wanted to bring Ross on this week because even though it's not a big LSU Alabama week, it is LSU Alabama week, and and Ross, you know, cut his teeth as a beat writer for LSU and and has great sources in LSU and Alabama, and really knows these programs. So I figured it was a good time to catch up with Ross for that and some other things. So Ross, thanks very much for joining me this week on the show. Yeah, no problem, Ross. LSU Alabama a year ago was, well, not in the playoff rankings, but in the AP rankings, a one versus two game. It was the game of the century. And a year later, like you could hardly recognize where LSU is. So let's start there. I think, I think it's very interesting to see what's happened a year later with these programs. And again, you have a lot of intimate knowledge with LSU. I, we all expected some regression at LSU this year. Were you at all at any way thinking that it could have gotten this bad at LSU this year after all the attrition? Well, like you said, I, you know, I think we all expected uh, a dip. Um, and in fact, I remember when the, preseason AP poll came out, LSU was like uh, four or five or six, yeah, six somewhere in six. there. And yeah, and I, and I remember thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Uh, and, I, and I know why voters did that, obviously, reigning national champion. But to me, you know, I, I would have been shocked, uh, even during preseason, if LSU would have finished the year in the top 15. I just, I thought this was going to be a six and four, seven and three at best type type season. And uh, I never, ever would imagine that LSU would be staring right down uh, the barrel out of three and seven uh, and maybe at best four and six uh, season. Uh, that's and that's what it looks like it's going to happen. And the big thing is, uh, again, obviously, we we knew they they going to lose a lot of players. I think they lost uh, 18 of the 22 starters from that national championship team. It's just wild when you when you. 
uh, lump in uh, some opt-outs um, and, and things like that. Uh, in fact, somebody from LSU sent me a, uh, a list of the 55, I think, guys who played in that um, championship game or maybe played against Alabama last right. year, actually. Mm-hmm. They sent it to me yesterday. And so it was like 55 guys. And I think um, maybe tw- 20 of the 55 remain on the team. 10 of the 20 start now. Um, uh, but it's just, the numbers are just wild. I mean, they just lost so much and not just from players, but obviously from the staff too. And you see what now staff members are, are doing, you know, you got the head coach at Baylor who was the LSU defensive coordinator and then Carolina Panthers offensive coordinator who was a uh, pass game coordinator at LSU. And then, and then what people f- seem to forget is LSU lost three really important analysts to power five programs, uh, to position jobs at, at power five programs. So they really lost a ton. So you knew it was coming, but I just never could have thought this. And I, and it's defensively is, is the, the most shocking uh, part. I, I've never quite seen, and they've been playing better late, but I've never quite seen an LSU defense through the first five games or so of this season play like that. And you have to go back decades, I think, to, to find that. And really, you know, statistically, you, you've got to go, you, you can't go back far enough. Um, it is statistically the worst defense that in the history of LSU football. It's, it's crazy. So there's a temptation because, uh, listen, the attrition alone is probably gives a pr- pretty good explanation of why things are where they are. But I think there's also a temptation to sort of look under the hood and say, you know, is there is there was there some culture issues here? Guys like Jamar Chase saying, you know what, I'm out, you know, before the season and opting out. Um, was there something in the way Orgeron was running the program? Now we can he's gonna he's gonna take a ton of heat for the he has for the Bo Pelini hiring, and that might be something he needs to fix in the offseason, which is you know amazing because they they paid Bo Pelini a lot of money. Um, but again, you're pretty familiar with the program still, even though you're not on the beat. Is there something under the hood that maybe people are talking about? People, LSU fans, are are worried about that maybe that makes them wonder if Orgeron maybe you know played something wrong here or did something wrong beyond just lose a lot of players and coaches. Yeah, right. Uh, definitely, absolutely. That is that is a topic of conversation down there, and it it's uh, it's mostly a a topic because of the I think the amount of opt outs in the amount of in season uh, opt outs from players. I think they're up to around eight uh, LSU opt outs, um, and I don't know if that leads the nation or know how that stacks up, but I would guess it's really high up there. And they've had I think three or four mid season, um, so. It's, it's a, it's a real issue there. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you talk to other coaches who, who watch LSU defensively specifically. And the first thing that I think comes to their, their mind when they watch LSU play is, man, it just doesn't look like they're giving a lot of effort. Uh, and that obviously is, um, causing the question of the culture in, in the attitude and the motivation within the program. Um, so from talking to people down there, that is, a hundred percent, um, a, a topic of conversation. And I'll, I'll point you back to the summer, um, where every program dealt with, uh, the, the social 
uh, justice issue. And programs dealt with it differently. And some coaches uh, dealt with it. Uh, well, coaches dealt with it in very different ways. Um, some of them stepped in it, as we all know. Um, hmm. we, we saw Mike Gundy and maybe Mike Norvell, some of their players calling them out. Uh, we saw a little bit of that. We, we saw a little bit of that in, in, in Baton Rouge. It, it didn't get as much play because um, I don't think players were as blunt about it. But you know, LSU players gathered for a march in I believe late July or early August, and their coach wasn't with them. And he later joined them uh, with the athletic director. So I think we we could look back there and we could uh, we could point to some of the things that happened over the summer uh, for sure. As far as when you talk about culture and and the whole togetherness and the motivation behind behind playing, it wasn't long um, after all of that uh, you know social justice type stuff that you had a couple of really big opt outs that are. Uh, you know, it could be the difference between a win and a loss um, in Jamar Chase and Tyler Shelvin, the big nose tackle, and, of course, the receiver that will be probably a first-round pick. Yeah, again, it's hard to quantify that stuff. And as a person who is sort of sabermetrically inclined, uh, I always hedge to or hesitate to try to quantify it and try to make, you know, make, oh, here's the reason why. Because, again, the most important thing is losing a lot of talent, man. And they lost, and they just lost a boatload of talent. And then, of course, they also have Miles Brennan get hurt. So that the one side of the ball that they probably could have relied on to be a little more productive, even though they lost a lot of offensive players early in the year, the offense seemed to have, you know, obviously it's not going to be as good as it was last year. But between Brennan and Terrace Marshall, there's a there was a chance that that could have at least sort of carried them along and it didn't in a couple of games and then Brennan gets hurt and it looks like Finley has some upside and and the other kid is Max Johnson if I remember correctly but clearly they didn't want to be playing those players this year is there any thought that you know sometimes when you have a season like this and everything goes awry well you're getting your younger players some exposure and some reps and maybe developing them in a way that maybe you didn't think you were going to if you had been in contention uh, as you sort of survey this game a little bit and know the LSU you know roster is there is there any kind of a silver lining for LSU in that hey maybe we're going to get an idea of, of it whether it's Finley or Johnson next year maybe we're going to get some kids in there who were freshmen who we didn't think we were going to play who will be now set to launch and be really good next year well, sure, and I think that 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 can always be the case when you have, you know, when you have an injury to a starter uh, in the backup, backups come in and start playing, or when you have players opt out and you have to see the backups come in, is is that they're getting, um, certainly getting those reps, those game reps that um, uh, are so essential. And you look to next year, and I I do expect Miles Brennan to come back um, next season, but but if he doesn't, or if something happens. You, you have some game reps for, for Finley, um, uh, quite a bit of game reps for Finley and you have some for, uh, for Mac Johnson, Max Johnson. Uh, you know, Finley has proven to me that he certainly has the talent. Uh, you know, he's got a rocket of an arm and we've seen that, but obviously, um, it's pretty clear as a true freshman, he, you know, mentally probably isn't ready in, in, in that's something that, uh, I'm sure LSU, um, in, enjoys that he's getting these reps to 
to get more mentally ready. And the same can be said for some of the other spots. You know, backup receivers had to had to play with uh, Jamar out and out. Terrace Marshall uh, opts out, and uh, so you have more receivers, uh, wideouts play a little bit. Um, you've, you've had that same stuff happen on the defensive line. You have young players. So, yeah, I, I think there's some silver lining um, in in the, uh, you know, rapid maturation, maturation process of these young players looking at next year. Because, Ralph, you know, um, uh, you know, being down in Mississippi and covering the SEC, you know how fan bases can be. I mean, we're, LSU is, is less than a year Remove from winning a national title and maybe putting together one of the best seasons in college football history, and you you already of course hear the the rumblings of uh, Ed Orgeron to sign by the way a new six year deal uh, with a fairly big buyout I believe so you but you already you automatically hear the rumblings and so you look to next season of man you know if they do end up three and seven or four and six this year boy next year is, seems to be really important. And so for these players getting the time on the field this season in kind of a throwaway type year, um, uh, it's, it's big, it's big for, for next season, which is really consequential. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a silver lining there for sure. Yeah. So that was, I'll, I'll let you elaborate on that and then we'll move on. And, and that was my next question of, of, has how much credibility has Orgeron burned through? I mean, that seems crazy. Honestly, like it seems mad, right? Because he he did a nice job not just last year, but also building toward last year, right? It, it should be a, a season like this. While you, you know, it certainly it goes on your permanent record. It should also, you would think, be something of thought of a little bit of anomaly. COVID boy. You know, that stinks, but we'll go get him next year, Coach O. But that's just not the way the SEC works anymore, especially the top tier of the SEC, where like one bad season is just simply is going to drive some people to panic. Um, so yeah, I, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Like what, how much credibility do you think Coach O has burned? Well, not just through the fan base, but how about like the people who matter more, the, the boosters and, and maybe even Scott Wood, Woodard, the, the athletic director? Well, you got to remember a few things. Uh, first of all, you mentioned Woodward there. You know, he didn't hire Ed Ogeron. And, and you know, uh, Ralph, uh, uh, as well as anybody, that when you have a, a coach um, uh, who, we have an AD who, who comes in as relatively new and did not hire that coach, um, you know, it, it's, it's just a little different than having an AD who, who hired that coach. You can imagine having a boss, you know, having a change um, whoever your boss is and having that, that person change, it's a lot of times probably not great for you. And I think that's the case we see a lot in college football as ADs come in and, and you'll see they'll make a, a very sudden or, or quicker than normal change. Not to say Scott's going to do that, but it's something to keep in mind that he didn't hire at Orgeron. Uh, as far as the fans and the boosters down there, we all have to go back to three, four years ago um, when LSU basically offered the job to Tom Herman and he decided to go to Texas and they fell back to Ed Orgeron. Um, at that point, there were a lot of fans and boosters that certainly thought the uh, it wasn't a good, the right decision. They yeah. pointed to Ed Orgeron's record at Ole Miss mm-hmm. and, and all that. And 
And but what he did, as you mentioned, he he built up the program. He did with great recruiting and some great hires on the staff. Um, and he got to the point where they put together a great season. Um, and, and we always, yeah, we have to we have to keep that in mind. But I think those boosters and those fans who who saw who said three or four years ago this was the wrong move, it's very easy for them to say, "See, mm-hmm. this is a one year wonder. See, see, we told you." And I think that's some of what's going on down there. And that, of course, everything at LSU and a lot of other programs in the SEC and the SEC West is viewed through the prism of Alabama. And I realize Ross coming into this, you know, interview with you, I, we I just don't talk about Alabama a lot on this podcast, which mm. sounds crazy because they're the best team in the country, but they're boring in their greatness, right? I, we we just have come to the point where we assume Alabama will be great. And then when they are great, it's not news. So I found myself thinking, I got to talk about Alabama this week because they're, you know, I hate to say like this is the best Alabama team because it's almost impossible. They're almost indistinguishable at this point. And to say like this team is better than last year's team when this year's team has two first round draft pick wide receivers and last year's team had four. So it's impossible to sort of make those comparisons. But I will say this. This offense is playing like last year's LSU offense, and we thought that might be a once-in-a-lifetime offense. Um, it, it is remarkable where Alabama is. I, I guess what I'd ask you, Ross, is um, did are you at all surprised at where Alabama is right now offensively that they could repeat what they are doing with what they were doing with Tua and the extra receivers now with Mac Jones, who has been a brilliant player, but is probably not the prospect Tua is. It's just, I I don't know. I don't even know if I have a question here as much as to say like, holy crap, (laughs) Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. Same old same, right? This never changes. Uh, They've been now, we're going on, I don't know, uh, four to five, six years running, uh, of them, uh, having this, you know, juggernaut of, of an offense. Uh, even, even way back, even, yeah, six, seven years ago, you know, when Kiffin was there and they kind of changed and went to the spread, uh, they didn't have the, you know, they weren't putting up the points necessarily that they are now, but, but they, they still were, were so fun to watch and, and always were creative and, and scored a good amount of points and it's just evolved into a situation where no matter who the players are now, um, they're just pieces that, that, that fit into the uh, puzzle that is this, you know, explosive offense year in and year out. It's, it's incredible. And I did not expect anything like this. Um, but I covered the Georgia Alabama game and, and I remember talking to some Alabama staff members after that game and, and they just acted so like shrug, you know, well, yeah, we knew this was coming. We've seen Mac Jones in practice like for two or three years. He knows the system. He sees the field. We knew, we knew it. Uh, and he's surrounded by these five star players, uh, and these great athletes. So, um, but I'm still, I, I catch myself and I shouldn't be in shock. I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, being at that Georgia Alabama game and, Alabama's explosive enough that within 60 seconds they can go from trailing by uh, by four points to leading by 10, and, and that's exactly what happened. It, it's it's uh, crazy, and, and they've got another you know Heisman Trophy uh, candidate at quarterback and um, a stud running back, and 
first round receivers and in a defense that uh, starting to to show signs of uh, uh, Alabama of old, I guess, in a way. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's really been incredible to watch. But I think it speaks to a lot of the evolution of football in general and, and where we are in the game. So two quick things. One on one quick thing on the defense is, and I wrote about this last week um, in my sort of wrap up Saturday night column is that, you know, listen, we should never be surprised that Alabama has got talent, right? I mean, they're all talented players. Okay. I want to interrupt you just for a second, Ross, because, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to do breaking news on a, on a podcast because this right. is recorded, but just so my listeners and our listeners can understand when this is recorded, some pretty significant news just came in literally as I'm talking to, to Ross. So I wanted to cut him off. And that is this statement from Ohio State Department of Athletics. The Ohio State University football team will resume organized team activities this afternoon, this afternoon being Tuesday in preparation for its game Saturday against Michigan State in East Lansing, Michigan. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Ohio State is definitely playing this weekend, but it means they very well could be playing this weekend, and that's definitely a positive sign. We will get to more of Ohio State. I want to finish up our Alabama conversation first. Uh, part of it, the two more things I wanted to ask you was the defensive part. Listen, we know Alabama's got talent, right? They they always have four and five star kids, so there's never a question that eventually they will have a bunch of NFL guys on their offense or on their defense. It has been interesting to me to see them sort of come along and these some of these kids who you know we hadn't necessarily heard about are becoming impact players and Christian Miller and I guess uh, uh, Tim Smith is one of the kids up front and some of these D-backs Malachi Moore is a freshman who looks like the next big star player in the defensive backfield so they haven't played the best of competition over the last few weeks but without question, they have looked more like an Alabama defense. I guess if nothing else, it probably takes um, uh, Pete Golding off the hot seat, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, because they they did they there were times for, certainly last year where right where they they really looked rough, um, and then there were times earlier this season where they did. But uh, it is it's all starting to come together at the right time. I was on a um, in an LSU uh, Baton Rouge based radio station earlier this week. And I, I, I said those exact words, boy, you know, Alabama's offense is humming like always and better than ever. And the defense is coming around at the right time. And, you know, the host who is a former LSU football player said, yeah, great. Just perfect time. You know, <laughs> is that T-Bob? To, to Baton Rouge. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, they, they're, they're <laughs> former LSU center. So yeah, they, it is, it, it's all seem, seem, seeming to, uh, to come together, peaking at the right time with the tide, and it always seems to be that, that case. So uh, I hate to sometimes make these judgments on a person's personality when you see them for five to ten minutes on a Zoom or a three-minute television interview. But let me let me see if you're seeing the same things as I am. I feel like Nick Saban has been – Again, from the interactions through Zoom interviews and, you know, press conferences and just seeing him on TV has been remarkably, I'm trying to figure out what the word is here, like mellow. I don't know if mellow is the right word. Remarkably um, calm, um, in some ways almost like 
he just seems to be rolling with it this year. I've, I've noted like he made some jokes after the LS, or excuse me, after the, um, the Auburn game where the Iron Bowl where he wasn't allowed to be on the sideline and even leading into it. Like, are you n- noticing anything from seeing Saban that suggests that, I don't know, like in a year where you'd think that he would be as or more intense than usual because of all these things that are going on around him that are not in his control, that he's learned to sort of like say, going to be okay with that. We have good people in place, and as long as everything works out, I'm going to be okay. Have you noticed or sensed any of that, or is that me just projecting because I'm looking for a story? <laughs> no, I have. I've sensed it, and I, really, I've been I've been sensing it, I, I, you know, for the last like couple of seasons. But I I, I do notice uh, this year he's just it, it, he just is calmer, and and maybe this is something that maybe it's part of just <laughs> I hate to say it, but getting older. You know, and I, and I think he, he obviously is about to hit, uh, well, I think he just turned 69. Yep. So he's, uh, he's getting close to, uh, um, that, uh, 70 mark and he's just uh, getting older. And, I, and I've seen it the last few years. I think he's steadily gotten grew calmer and calmer and even more understanding with the media. But specifically this year, um, I agree. It, it does seem like he's even been calmer. Uh, uh, in, in more mellow than, than normal. Um, and I think maybe it's just an evolution of, uh, of Nick Saban. Now, I, I will say he, he hasn't been as, he has been calmer on the sidelines than he like was five years ago. But man, he still does, uh, seem to get, um, uh, you know, seem to go crazy, have little bursts <laughs> of, of right. anger right. on the sideline. Uh, there's still that, that, uh, that intensity there, but for sure, um, in, in press conference settings and in zooms and stuff, he, he does seem to be uh real calm, you know, and I, and I know you've probably sat down with Nick, like in the past and, uh, you know, you know, just face to face, whatever one-on-one opportunities. And I've only, I've only done it once. It was like two years ago or a year and a half ago, I guess at the SEC spring meetings and um, just me and him in a room. And gosh, I remember coming away with, Man, that is not what I expected. Yeah, um, yeah, that's absolutely because, the case. Yeah, yeah, he was so calm and really, really soft spoken, and almost walked out of the room with me really like gingerly, like old man. E, you know, <laughs> it was weird to see. Um, so he can be that way, and I think I think with age, I think it's an evolution. But but this year, I have I've noticed it even more. He is a little friendlier in one-on-one situations than you might think he would be considering his public persona. Like, uh, you know, when you sit down with him one-on-one, and and I know this sounds like, like a small thing that, like, why is that notable? But not all coaches do this. You have to understand, like, not all coaches do this. Like, Nick and I don't know each other well. So, you know, when I saw him in the last one-on-one, it was a little bit of like a reintroduction. Like, oh, yeah, I kind of know who you are, but like, oh, where are you from again? And things like that. But he did ask, like, oh, so where are you from in New York? Um, you know, could just a couple of questions about like me, just a little like icebreaker stuff a little like small talk chit chat and you think like, well, that's not a big deal. I'm telling you, some coaches don't do that. If you get 20 mm-hmm. minutes in their office, like, okay, t- recorders on go. And as soon as 
20 minutes right. is up, you're out. <laughs> like, like, so mm-hmm. the fact that like Nick does that, I don't know if people who see his public persona and think of him as tough on media would think he would be that cordial in those settings, but he yeah. very much is like, uh, you'll talk to him for a couple of minutes about baseball, right? Cause again, I'm mm-hmm. from New York and he likes the Yankees. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit of that. He's definitely a little more cordial than maybe you'd expect from his public persona. Last thing on Alabama, last thing on Alabama. We came into this season with the, with the narrative that we have three elite teams, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. They're sort of in a, in a, in, a, in tier one. And then there's everybody else. I, I am sensing after watching Clemson and watching Ohio State and even Notre Dame and some other teams that Alabama is inching away from the rest of its other tier. That's not to say like we're going to hand them the championship right now, though maybe we should because we're just flailing down the stretch here. Um, but do you sense that Alabama right now, having seen all the other teams in that tier one, maybe distancing itself, distancing itself from the rest of tier one? Yeah. And, you know, I, after seeing, um, uh, and I went to uh, covered Ohio State, Indiana in person, and, and you know, not that in person uh, you get a better feeling or anything. But I found myself even, you know, even putting Ohio State maybe on a, a lower tier than than even the others. So if you if you have Alabama pulling away from that group of three, um, it, it it feels like to me that Notre Dame and Clemson are on a second tier, and then there's a a third tier maybe with, with even with Ohio State. Uh, and I say that about Ohio State because of their defense um, and, and how concerning I think it's been um, not just against Indiana, the game I covered, but against um, Rutgers and, and shoot even Penn State. Uh, I think I feel like um, the defensive issues that, that they have, especially uh, in the secondary, is concerning. Um and and so that's kind of how how I view it, but I I, I feel like I, I agree with you about Alabama. Just it seems to be above and beyond all of the other teams, and it's it, it's clear their defense is starting to round in shape and match the offense. And it's just um, it, you know you you just don't uh, you you watch them play and uh, they just dominate. I mean it, it's. Uh, it's incredible what we've seen this year, despite COVID and, and all this stuff when, when teams, you know, didn't have spring and had an interrupted summer and all that stuff. What we're finding is I think it's evening COVID is evening the playing field. And we've seen a lot more road upsets and underdogs winning, but Alabama just continues to dominate. And, uh, just, it feels like a, a normal season. Uh, they just <laughs> continue to roll on. So yeah, they're, they're, they're clear cut. Um, number one. Now, I think they'll get pushed against Florida in the SEC championship game, but to me, right now, they, they are clear number one. Okay. Ross, are you good for another 15 minutes? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. All right, Sarah, you can cut that part out. Okay. So, three, two, one. All right, I want to take a quick break. I'm talking with what Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. I'm going to come back and turn the subject to Ohio State. There's some news today to, to address with them. Maybe talk a little coaching carousel and maybe a little Heisman in there too. Uh, you're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Back right after this. Hey, it's Michael Rosenbaum. 
You may remember me as Lex Luthor from the hit TV show Smallville. Regardless, I have this really cool podcast called Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum, where I get celebrities who are a lot more famous than me to really open up. Let's get inside of Jim Jeffries. Oh, I never did anything with my life. I could have been a better son. Oh, God. I should apologize to this person. So join me on Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, Ralph Russo talking with Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. So, Ross, uh, you know, I, I broke in with the live news, quote unquote, live news of Ohio State getting some encouraging news that they're going to resume organized team activities. Now, that might necessarily put them on the practice field on Tuesday, but if they can resume activities on Tuesday and maybe get a, something that looks like a practice in on Wednesday, you know, they should be able to play. The big news really in the playoff race is not who's number one and who's number four, who's number five. It's will Ohio State play enough games to make the playoff? Not because there's a minimum on the playoff to get in, but because at a certain point, don't you think that you have to play X number of games to be judged properly? So now again, encouraging that we might get to a point where they're going to play enough. They can't lose one more, but they, they seem to be on track to play this weekend. But as you look at this, do you think Ohio State can be shut out of a Big Ten title game and still make the playoff? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, it, um, I guess it, it, it I guess it won't bode, bode better for them, but, but I do think it could happen. Um, you know, if they, if they do, uh, you know, miss, miss one more game and they, they'll end up, uh, maybe playing, I want to say they could play Wisconsin. They could, they could uh, have, finish yeah. the year. Yep. Yeah. And so they could get to six and zero oh, um, that route. Uh, it, it, it really would be hard, right. For the committee to, to, Leave out a six and zero Big Ten champion named Ohio State. It, <laughs> it, uh, it 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 just it would be hard. I would believe it when I see it that they would do that. I just think uh, even in look if Ohio State Ohio State schedule. Um, I did this. I ran the numbers earlier this uh, uh, last week, and I don't have them in front of me now. But at one point, um, their regular season opponents were. Uh, had a winning percentage of like 30%. Basically, they were like 10 and 22 or something like that. Now, that's changed obviously since, but the bottom line is if they play those six games, I think two of the six probably will be, um, a wins against, um, uh, teams with a winning record. Uh, yeah, Indiana so got, and Wisconsin. Yeah. And then you, yeah. And then you've got, and then you've got, uh, the just the, that they're going to play half of the games <laughs> in they didn't, didn't, you know, play for a, a big 10 championship um gosh it, it is mounting against them but you just then ralph i guess have to look at the competitors you know um it would be a undefeated cincinnati team it would be a 9-1 um uh, texas a&m team um depending on what happens with florida and alabama it could be a one loss uh, alabama or maybe a two loss florida although you you would think that wouldn't wouldn't happen but I, I, in that situation, I'm, I would think that they would put Ohio State in at, at, at four, um, which I know that the Aggies, if they're nine and one, would 
absolutely raise all the hell possible. I'm <laughs> sure. And honestly, they, they would be right to do it. They, they would have played four more games and their only loss would have been to the number one team in the nation. Uh, I, I'm sure that's a, that, that is a, um, scenario. And I know you do a lot of the scenarios every Sunday, which I love the one's got to go. Uh, that would be the scenario that would be the worst, I would think, for the CFP committee is is if they are deciding between a six and zero Ohio State team that was shut out of its championship game against a nine and one Texas A and M that whose only loss is is to um, number one Alabama. Uh, I, I would I would guess that that would be the most difficult of of all the situations. And then of course <laughs> you throw in the whole Clemson Notre Dame thing too. Um, you know, if, uh, if, if Notre Dame plays a really close game against Clemson, those teams would have split and you would think that, um, they would have to include Notre Dame in. Um, but, but what if that game is a 30 point game? Uh, it, there's so many scenarios, but, but certainly the one that's going to come down to the <laughs> selection committee, um, making, you know, decisions on, I guess it, Ralph, it would be, Two to three, right? If you have a nine and one A and M, um, an eleven and one Notre Dame, and a six and zero Ohio State, mm-hmm. you have to put. You know, it would be come down to two of those three getting in, and, and I'm sure that's a that's a scenario the uh, <laughs> the selection committee I'm sure does not want. Yeah, it. it I, I think it. The eye test will tell you that Ohio State is is going to is probably one of the four best teams in the country, though not without flaws, but they're just not going to be able to build up a resume. And you say, well, the best they can do is 7-0, so what's the difference if you lose one more game in 6-0? And I know you can kind of talk yourself into that, and I'm I'm sure yeah. the, the selection committee might do just that, right? Like, well, what's the difference between 7-0 and 6-0? But I, I would say that, no, every game does matter a lot when you're talking about these smaller sample sizes. It, it is the worst-case scenario in some ways for the committee because there's a there's a path here for this thing to work itself out fairly easily like Ohio State goes undefeated Notre Dame and Clemson play a relatively close game and Clemson wins they both get in Alabama does its thing and just and 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 takes apart Florida and then ta-da we have our four teams um but Ohio State is the, is has become a weird wild card here because you know will they play this week? Well, Michigan shut down its deal, right? And so if Michigan has a problem, that's Ohio State's next opponent. Like it's not just Ohio State; it's their opponents who they can't lose games to. So, hey, man, it's a pandemic, but which also leads me to this, and that that is like, it just seems like the Big Ten is 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 hexed now, right? I mean, it's just like they came back, and it's. I, I do wonder if some of those Big Ten presidents are wondering, like, this is what we came back for, you know? Uh, it just every move they have made has turned out to be the wrong move, whether it was wrong at the time or not, or just circumstances turned out to be the wrong move. Like, it just seems like no matter what they what they do, it turns out in the end, in with hindsight, oh yeah, that didn't work out either. It is. Uh, I was talking to a, a group of five AD earlier this week who, who, um, you know, said what everybody else probably, at least outside the Big Ten and some probably inside the Big Ten are thinking. And that's, you know, uh, the Big Ten, um, has illustrated a way, uh, uh what, what did he say? He said the Big Ten, um, has, uh, uh I guess portrayed how not to make decisions, you know, the best, you know, <laughs> and, and when you start from, they decided to can't cancel the season 
and um and and then they decided to play the season and now when they decided to play the season they they did it with such a rigorous set of protocols that felt like to me was almost designed to fail uh they had no flexibility uh, in their schedules um no bye weeks or anything like that they had the 21 day mandatory uh suspension of players that uh were, were tested positive. Uh, it, 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 and then they have the, the, the COVID rates on the team. Um, it, it just was felt like it was set up to fail. And now here we are. And, and they're in a way, I guess they're failing. It, it's, it's tough to really watch. It's, it's like a car crash. It's, it's tough. And, and believe me, um, people, I think people around the nation specifically in the SEC are, are, chuckling uh, under their breath in a lot of ways or behind the closed doors. Um, and you hate to, to do that. And they would never do it publicly because we're in the middle of a pandemic for crying out loud, but, but they are, it's just real. They're they're You know, the, the decision-making and the lack of patience, I think from the big 10 um, is making others just kind of giggle. But I will say this, uh, you know, um, what the other conferences decided isn't perfect either. I mean, you know, everybody's having an issue here. I think the other conferences had flexibility is what I think. And they showed some patience early on. Um, and, and they had protocols that, you know, uh, you could say were a little more risky, but, but at the same time followed all the CDC. I mean, Big Ten went over and above the CDC stuff. And, uh, so that's it's it's just crazy, Ralph, that that we're sitting here, um, in we might have uh, Ohio State, you know, out of the the Big Ten championship game, and in um, you've got what maybe uh, yeah all but maybe two or three of the of the conferences teams have had had a game impacted. It's yeah, it's it's um or a game canceled, I should say. It's 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 crazy and it's kind of unfortunate, and I, I think. I wonder myself what you said, uh, are some big 10 presidents going, man, we should have stuck with the guns and, and we should, we should have just played a, a spring season when this vaccine's going to roll out and all this, um, because we're seeing the spikes. Uh, and I was talking to Shane Lyons a few days ago, we're seeing the spikes that everybody thought we would see. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just having a brace for it. It's this uptick around the holidays and in the winter. Yeah, the fact of the matter is we are lurching toward the end of the season. All the conferences are, again, the, the number of games that are getting postponed and canceled are going up all over. The problem with the Big Ten is it didn't give itself a window to do some makeups and to say, okay, this game doesn't matter that much, so we can just forget about it, but we'll move on and we'll give everybody a little leeway here. So it's as simple as that. All the conferences, trust me, nobody's doing a good job of keeping their their players from getting infected except Boston College, right? <laughs> just about every other school has had outbreaks and issues and things along those lines. And again, you know, Alabama's rolling along. There are a lot of teams that haven't necessarily had to go on pause, but in the grand scheme of things, what's happening in the Big Ten is not necessarily not happening in other places. It's just that the way all the decisions the Big Ten have made to come to this point have given, have made, have accentuated their problems, have accentuated all the negatives. And then, of course, like things away from COVID 
like Michigan stinks, Penn State stinks, which leads yeah. to these other issues about like getting just like we were talking about with Ohio State, right? Like, well, it's going to be like if Ohio State played six games, but Penn State was really good and Michigan was really good and Michigan mm-hmm. State was pretty good. Like all of a sudden, like that sort of almost right. solves itself to a certain degree. But now that's out the window. And then like, well, Indiana is good, but like then poor Michael Penix, like, like it's, it's even the things away from COVID on the field that it's just like everything that can go wrong for the Big Ten seems to be going wrong. It's not just Ohio State that gets eliminated or that is in danger of getting getting eliminated from the championship race because of COVID. Wisconsin is out. They, they've already lost three games, and that's your second best team in the conference. So, it, again, it's just been one bad piece of bad news after the other for the Big Ten, they brought a lot of it on themselves by the way they've made decisions. Last thing, Ross, before I cut you loose out of here, and it's about the Heisman. And I have an interesting theory because right now it seems like Mac Jones and Kyle Trask are sort of running one, two here in the in the Heisman race. Um, but I have a feeling that a lot of voters might still be swayed because Trevor Lawrence is the best player in the country. Like, I think that at a certain point, people might look at this and go, I know those guys got the better numbers, but I know which one's the better player. And he may have lost a couple of games. So just a quick wonder, like, where do you think this thing is going to land on the, as far as the Heisman's concerned? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, the, the flashy kind of hot new names uh, always, uh, always kind of uh, get the spotlight uh, with Trask and Matt Jones, but um, but Trevor's kind of it, it's funny because he's only like like 21 years old, but he's kind of the old man of the group and been hanging around now for a while, playing really well. And although he missed a couple of games, you're right that hasn't changed that he's going to be probably going to be the number one pick in the draft next year because he is the most talented, best overall player and uh I, I think that if he keeps you know if he plays well if he's playing well down the stretch um that he ultimately he'll he'll win that he'll win that that trophy and, and i think part of it i wonder uh, ralph but part of it's not going to be voters and, and i vote in the heisman and, and i even have this sometimes come up it's like man you know trevor has deserved this Mm-hmm. It's finally time in his last year to give it to him, even though he missed a couple of games. No, I agree. I think that 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 it's not supposed to be a lifetime achievement, but I think at some point yeah. we look back on these and say, "Wait a second, this guy is not. We're going to let this guy leave college football without mm-hmm. a Heisman Trophy." I know I said that would be the last thing, but I did want to get one more thing because I promised the listeners this. Uh, do you think Tom Herman's going to get fired? <laughs> A real simple question oh, for you. <laughs> God, uh, yeah, right. I know, right? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean toward no, but man, it wouldn't surprise me. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Even though Texas had all these financial issues and cuts and budget cuts and furloughs and all that, um, I, I still think there's so much money over there at the boosters that it could happen. But I, you know, right now on December one, I'm leaning toward no. I think that they give him. Another year, but obviously going into next year, uh, if he does, they do give him another year. Going into next year will be just about um, as do or die of a year as it gets. 
Yeah, my lean on that is it's it's the front end. It's on the front end. It's if they, you know you can get Urban Meyer to be your next mm-hmm. coach, then mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I think that there's. I, I'd be interested to see what kind of work is done on the front end there. Uh, because yeah. if not, if all you're doing is, and listen, I love Matt Campbell as a coach. I, I am, I am a total honk for that guy. Like I, I will admittedly say, like, I think that guy's a great coach and I think he would be great at almost anywhere. But listen, all these guys are a little bit of a roll of the dice. Uh, there are very yeah. few sure things. So if all you're doing is spending 24 million to get rid of Herman and his staff, for another guy who's a little bit of a roll of a dice, that's a hard thing to sell. If it's urban, it's not as much of a roll of dice. If it's if it's somebody else, maybe mm-hmm. it's best to to not, you know, burn that twenty four million dollars. And that's where I sort of am on this. Hey Ross, man, yeah, I agree. I agree. If you you got to have somebody in the in the uh, in the wings there, and that somebody would have to be would have to be urban in order to. I think yeah, in order to pull the trigger, but. Uh, but hey, you know, crazy things happen. It's 2020, so who knows? <laughs> Ross, I appreciate you taking a lot of time to, to chat with me about all this stuff. Hey, uh, um, done a great job this year covering what has been an absolutely bad year. I've said this with w- among our colleagues and privately, uh, but I don't know if I've said it to you. Uh, and, and I think a lot of our colleagues have done a really good job this year because it's been crazy and there's been a lot of stuff come down the pipe. But I will say this. I think you've done as good a job as anybody, if not the best job as anybody of covering college football through a pandemic. So great work. Really appreciate you coming on. Really appreciate your friendship. And hey, stay safe on your travels. And hopefully maybe we get to bump into each other at a playoff game. Or maybe not bump into each other. Maybe we can see each other. How about that? <laughs> There's going to be no bumping into anybody these days. But hopefully we maybe get a chance to right. see each other at a playoff game. And I really mean it. You have been awesome this year in your in your work with um, with just, you know, again, covering this madcap year. You have been absolutely killing it. Well, I appreciate it, man. It, it means a lot for for you to say that, and obviously, I enjoy um, reading everything you do. And and uh, you guys do a great job. Always lean on the AP, man. Uh, always the sure thing, you know. So, <laughs> I uh, I appreciate uh, you saying that, though. And it's great to be on with you. Take care, Ross. Thanks a lot, man. Yep. Now, three and out. First down. Often when the schedule is lacking obvious big games, it produces some of the craziest results. So we can look at this week's college football schedule and hope. But folks, I think we're going to have to find our entertainment this week away from the playoff and conference championship races. Maybe, for example, Penn State at Rutgers could be interesting because the Scarlet Knights have been much improved in year one under Greg Schiano, part two. Meanwhile, there is a path for Penn State to finish with enough victories to get everybody in Happy Valley to calm down, maybe just a little bit, and shrug off that 0-5 start as an anomaly. I'm curious to watch UCLA play with the Bruins 2-2 and visiting an Arizona State team that has missed three straight games. Is Chip Kelly's program coming around, or is it just taking advantage of some unusual circumstances in an unusual year? Over in the MAC, what will Buffalo's Jarrett Patterson do this week after he ran for 300 yards two weeks ago and 409 yards and eight touchdowns last week? The Bulls play 
Ohio this week. Second down, the bowl lineup is down to 34 games as of this recording. Reportedly, the Sun Bowl, one of the oldest postseason games in college football, was canceled. The game takes place in El Paso, and the Texas city has been hit especially hard by COVID-19. So that community has far more important things to deal with right now than putting on a bowl game. Related, the Pac-12 has now lost half of its bowl tie-ins and is down to four. Over the weekend, the Pinstripe Bowl at Yankee Stadium also was called off for this year. That's a Big Ten ACC game. Hard to guess how many more bowl games might bail on the postseason, but it's probably not a bad thing that some are going away now if you look at the big picture. Allow me to explain. A deep bowl lineup will require some fringy teams to accept bowl bids. Teams with losing records or borderline 500 records, I think it's going to be hard to convince some of those teams to go through another week or so of COVID protocols to travel, to play a game that won't have any of the usual bowl trip add-ons. I was talking with an athletic director who basically said, yeah, like I'm using this as the carrot, like, hey, win our last game or two, finish with X record and we can get to a bowl game. We might get that bowl game anyway, this athletic director said. But I just don't know if my players are going to be into it at four and six or five and whatever. Uh, another coach said something similar that, hey, we're having such a good season and I'm pretty sure we're going to finish with enough wins that my players will be excited to go. But if we had stumbled down the stretch, I'm not sure if we were going to be able to sell it to the kids, hey, stay away from your families for another two, three, four weeks, you know, probably only two or three weeks, really, in those the type of bowl games that he, his team would be talking about. But stay away from your family and keep your life as rigid as it is now, just so we can go play in a bowl game with only four or five wins. I think that mentality is around a lot of college football, but because there are less bowl games, there'll be less of those teams in the position to make those type of decisions. I think less bowl games will mean you'll mostly have winning teams and teams that will be enthusiastic about trying to play if they can. This bowl season will be an interesting balance, basically, of trying to find teams that can and want to play, pairing them with games that want to and can be put on in a way that is both safe and, important, cost-effective. Third down. Only in current America could the story of Vanderbilt kicker Sarah Fuller create faux controversy or quote-unquote critics. Unless you have been under a rock, you know Fuller kicked for Vanderbilt last weekend and became the first woman to play in a Power 5 football game. She kicked off in the second half. Vandy didn't get close enough to the end zone to give her a chance to score some points against Missouri. So that was her only appearance of the game. Just to make sure the facts are clear here, Fuller is the goalkeeper on Vandy's SEC championship soccer team. Vandy needed to find an emergency kicker because of COVID issues. Vandy needed someone who was already in COVID protocols. So no open tryouts. Plus, even if they wanted to, it's Thanksgiving. Most of the students were heading home. Also, Vandy does not have a men's soccer team. 
The Vandy special teams coach said earlier this week that they tried some of the players on the current football team who had said, you know, they played soccer or kicked a little bit in high school. And the coach said those guys were awful. Fuller was the best option. And apparently she still is because as of this afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, when Vandy put out its depth chart, Sarah Fuller is listed as the starting kicker and the only kicker heading into the Georgia game for the Commodores. If nothing else, Fuller should be praised for having the guts to give this a try. Think about it. How many people would sign up to do something they have never done before, but in a very public setting to voluntarily put themselves in a position to fail on national TV, not to mention also risk getting crushed by a charging football player while you're doing that thing. So I don't know, folks. Seems like a pretty easy story to appreciate. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening. Come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Podcast.